I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everyone, it's Pacific. And thank you for tuning in to Entry 004. If you like the show and you like what we do, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help our show reach new listeners. And if you really, really like the show, consider becoming a member. For just $5 a month, you can get early and ad-free access to not only Out of Place, but other Midnight Disease shows like The Theater of Tomorrow, The Hotel, and, arriving next week, Margaret's Garden. All this and much, much more at midnightdisease.net slash join. And without further ado, this week's episode... I talked to Professor Birtwistle today. I was bringing a box of medieval coins back to one of the shelving rooms and he was bumbling along on his way to get a taxi to a meeting at King's College. I don't think I'd ever seen him outside his office before. But every now and again, lifelong academics have to gather in a wood-panelled conference room to confirm they're not all dead yet. Matthew, is it? He said. Andrew, I said, and he harumphed. I thought about asking him about the project, just demanding answers. I keep imagining someone finding out about all the artefacts and asking me why the hell I didn't scream the bloody place down until I learned where it had all come from, and I wouldn't have anything to tell them. But Birtwistle just has this aura about him. Not like he's scary or anything. He must be looking 70 in the face, and if he ever tripped up, I think it would be game over. He's just not someone you demand anything of. Like he activates some lizard instinct in my brain. Have you heard from Mr. Havisham? I said. 
It was as close as I could get to asking the professor outright about the project and who they were, where they were, what world they were in. I thought for a weird moment he would turn on me and change into something else, that I would realise all the flab and jowls were actually muscle and he was some indestructible old bastard like the end boss of a fighting game. But then it passed and he shrugged. I haven't talked to him for years, he said. Do you know him? I asked. Just spoke over the phone, he said. He's a big supporter, do as he says. That's all I got out of him. The cone of silence descended again. And off he went. I got another package from the project. Maybe mentioning them to the professor had summoned it somehow. It was waiting on my computer desk when I headed back down to my lair in the basement. It was a rectangle the size of a book, pretty tame compared to some of the others, but it was wrapped in brown paper so I knew it was from the project. I sat down heavily and stared at it for a bit. I knew I couldn't ignore it. What else was I good for? The package was addressed to Care of the Senior Archivist at the Carruthers Institute. I suppose that was me, although I'd never been called the Senior Archivist before. A weird sort of promotion. Inside was the small card. For archiving at your earliest convenience. Signed, Mr Havisham. At least I knew now that Mr Havisham was real, according to the professor. I had an image in my head of a man in a neat old-fashioned suit, seen in silhouette so I couldn't make out his face. Stupid, I know. Mr Havisham could be a code name for a whole group of people, for example. But when we don't have the full picture, our brain makes one to fill the gap. The package was the size of a book because it was a book, with a cardboard cover and a dog-eared dust jacket. The cover was light blue and had a picture of a pair of entwined snakes that looked like it came from a medieval woodcut. The title was The Hammer of Witches. The author was Heinrich Kramer, translation by Albert Hodge. I started typing it up into the archiving system. 229 pages, 152 by 216 millimetres. I hadn't archived a book before, I had to guess at what details I was supposed to include. I find myself doing that with everything the project sends. None of them want to fit neatly into a category. I'd heard of the Hammer of Witches. It's difficult to have an education in history without hearing about it, even an incomplete education like mine. In Latin, it is the Maleus Maleficarum. In German, it is Der Hexenhammer. There's nothing particularly unusual about a copy of the book. It's been translated plenty of times, first into German from the original Latin and then into English. There was probably a copy of it in the library at Senate House, not that I spent very much time there. It was hardly a rare or remarkable artefact in itself. I familiarised myself with the basics. In the late 15th century, a priest named Heinrich Kramer got kicked out of Innsbruck by the local bishop for his conduct in prosecuting the trial of a group of accused witches. Kramer had questioned one of the women rather too intensely about her... sexuality. He seemed obsessed with and repressed about that sort of thing. Today he'd be lurking in a basement with a crusty sock in one hand, clicking through the grossest porn he could dig up on the dark web. 
But back in those days, you had to make your own entertainment. Kramer got his own back on the Catholic establishment by writing a book about how to run witch trials. He got a dispensation from the Pope to do it, and on top of that he faked the endorsement of a theological college in Cologne. The name of a more respectable Dominican friar named Jacob Sprenger got attached to the book a few decades after it was published, but no one's sure if he really had anything to do with it. The church never actually used the book. They thought Kramer was a deviant, and his book was full of errors about the official theology and demonology of the church. Even the Inquisition thought he should steady on a bit. But it wasn't the church that Kramer aimed the book at. It was the secular courts. Back when most teaching was done by the church, the laity didn't have the education to be equipped with the kind of theological knowledge and critical thinking to see through Kramer's bullshit. They thought it was real. They accused witches. They tried them. They executed them. A big chunk of the book is taken up with theological justifications to make it look like a legitimate religious text. The rest is Kramer's dense ramblings about how witches must exist, who they are, what they do, how they can be identified and how to prosecute them. Kramer believed a witch could only be put to death if she confessed to her crimes. To get her to confess, she should be tortured. First, she should be lightly tortured. Then, if she still doesn't confess, she should be threatened with worse and then tortured more severely if she still refuses. Always with a notary present, so everything should be neat and official. When we think of a witch, we think of a woman. That is because of Heinrich Kramer. He had a problem with women. He wrote they were weak-willed and quicker to abandon their faith. Compared to men, they were intellectually defective because they were made from Adam's rib, a crooked and therefore defective body part. They were beautiful to look at, but contaminating to the touch. All that made them more susceptible to being seduced by the devil. Seduced literally. Kramer was obsessed with sex. He wrote a whole chapter about how the devil has sex with a witch. The worst thing a witch could do to him was to interfere with a man's ability to have sex or even make his organ of generation disappear entirely. He wrote a chapter about that too. I have a feeling Kramer never actually had sex with any women and I can't blame them. This was the book the project had sent to me. The main text looked the same as the PDF I found on the internet just by a different translator, though I didn't do a full comparison or anything. There was a foreword, a translator's note and an afterword. The translation was the first difference. Different from our world, I mean. It still seems weird saying that. Maybe I should think of a more academic term. Deviation from the chronological norm of non-standard actuality. Something like that. Albert Hodge's 1957 translation doesn't seem to have ever been published as far as the standard chronology goes. Hodge's notes say a new translation was needed because the modern world had changed so rapidly the text had to be updated to keep pace. The modern world. 470 years after the book was published.
What does the modern world have to do with the rantings of a medieval incel who thought women were trying to steal his dick? The afterword described the historical impact of the book. It was part of a general craze for prosecuting witches, combining with Protestants and Catholics competing to see who could be more zealous, the invention of the printing press and a bunch of other factors to create a moral panic after which all other moral panics are named. And that's it. There was no mention of the end of the witch craze. By 1700 it had declined and the Enlightenment pretty much killed it. But not in this book. The afterword ends halfway through the 17th century, with women being accused of infanticide, cannibalism, worshipping idols, daring to be sexually active and threatening the natural order of men and women. There's no Witchcraft Act of 1735 in Britain, for instance, which made falsely accusing someone of witchcraft itself illegal. I just skimmed it that far. I'd missed one of the appendices. It was about the engines of torture Kramer mentioned to be used on accused witches. It wasn't easy to read, but I couldn't stop, even when I could feel it polluting my brain. Hanging by the hands and the rack were the most common at first. Then it went on. Immersion in water cutting and beating. Devices clamped onto the knees, head, hands or feet that could be screwed tighter and tighter. Pressing the body under heavy weights. Pharmaceuticals. Hallucinogens. Electric shocks. Things that had never existed in the medieval and only modern periods used to extract confessions from witches. I looked at the footnotes in the main text more closely. Most of them were clarifications of the translation from Latin or notes on the historical people and events that were mentioned. But some were descriptions of how the hammer of witches was put into practice. Again, mostly historical instances centuries old. But not all. A case under the Raj where an outbreak of witchcraft in Hyderabad was cured by a series of trials held at a British army base. A factory worker in Birmingham who put curses on her co-workers and who was executed by being thrown into the steam-operated weaving loom where she worked. A French nurse who put charms in the bandages and dressings of soldiers she treated in World War I and who confessed under sodium thypentol. A sheet of paper was glued to the inside of the front cover. It was a form stamped with dates showing when the book had been taken out of a library and returned. It was covered in stamps, it had been popular. A set text maybe. The last of them was from 1992. At the top of the paper was printed the name of the lending institution. The Library of the College of Moral Hygiene. This was not a historical text used for reference when learning about an insane and shameful period of history. It was the hammer of witches presented for its original purpose. A practical guide to hunting witches. What kind of a world would treat the hammer of witches as real?
a world where the enlightenment, the growth of reason and science never happened, at least not in the same way. Where a book written to justify one degenerate's hatred of women was treated like objective fact. It would be a world without truth. A witch hunt is a war against truth, crushing it down by ranting about the devil and inflicting the fear of torture and execution. A mad world. When the project gets these artefacts, do they actually go to the places that made them? Does this Mr. Havisham walk through some doorway into a place of non-standard actuality? Do they see this world? If they did, if they saw that place where the University of London has a college of moral hygiene that trains witch hunters, I have one hope. I hope it looked completely different to our own world. Because the thing that scares me the most about this book is that its world looked far too familiar for comfort. Out of Place was created by Ben Counter. Sound design was done by Pacific S. Obadiah. If you like this show, consider checking out other Midnight Disease productions, like The Theater of Tomorrow, The Hotel, Lake Clarity, SCP Archives, and Margaret's Garden. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.